And our gospel lesson this morning um, comes from the book of Mark, in chapter 9, verses um, 30 through um, 37. If you recall last week, um, if, if you were here last week or listened online last week um, to our gospel reading, Jesus proclaimed to the, to the disciples that he must, um, the Messiah must die. That the Messiah is going to uh, die on a cross. And to follow Jesus, you need, sort of need to do the same thing. You have to also die. And we talked about what, what that um, death means is that um, not necessarily to give one's life, and although sometimes that happens, but to, to remove um, ourselves as the center of our life and make, make God the center of our life. And so what's interesting is that now we're here again. And in, in, um, the next chapter, they're still having the same conversation. And perhaps what it does is it gives us a clue, an insight, is that the disciples um, probably have a hard, just as hard a time of trying to understand what it means to have a Savior who doesn't come to conquer but comes to die for us. Um, so I invite you now to listen to the word of our Lord. It comes from um, Mark 8, I mean, excuse me, Mark 9, 30 through uh, 37. You can find it on page 45 in the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. They went up, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. But he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he would rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Caponium, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, Whoever wants to be the first must be the last of all and the servant of all. Then he took the little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. William Sloan Coffin is best known for serving as a pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. Uh, before his time at Riverside, Coffin served as a chaplain um, of students at Yale University. One of his tasks as a chaplain every year was to write letters of recommendations for seniors that are applying to graduate school. So every year he would write letters to the dean of admissions of schools like Columbia Law and, and Harvard um, Medical. And his recommendation letters, Coffin would often write something sort of like this. This student will undoubtedly be in the bottom quarter of the class. But surely you agree with me that the bottom quarter will just as carefully be selected as the top quarter. What would you be looking for in the bottom quarter, if not all the sterling extracurricular activities? So immediately embodied in this candidate. And Coffin would go on to say generous things about this individual and how caring this student was. Now, almost every single time a student read one of these letters, their feelings were hurt. How do you know that I'm going to be in the bottom quarter of my class, they would ask him. Well, Coffin would say, 
The evidence is in, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's in, but you don't have to tell them that. Uh, never mind that the student was graduating from Yale. Never mind the student was some, what, 99 percentile of all the students in the nation. And never mind that Coffin has said some amazing things about their human characteristics. They were upset with him because he hadn't named them as the top of their class. And for the students, this was scandalous. And for Jesus' disciples, it was scandalous that Jesus tells them, whoever wants to be first must be last at all, servant of all. And for Christians today, these words remain scandalous. Because if we look closely at what Jesus is telling us, Jesus is telling us that the way up is the way down. And this is counterintuitive today, just like it was counterintuitive 2,000 years ago. It's not that God is upset or, or worried when we receive promotions or get extra business or, or make more money or get a higher education. No, I think God actually celebrates in our achievements. What God is worried about is that when we believe that as we climb, as we achieve more, that what we're doing is earning our own salvation, that we're saving ourselves and saving the world. Salvation, redemption, is nothing that we can climb our way up to. Instead, it is found in the God who came down to this world to live with us. And for Christians, that is all of our hope. But of course, we don't wake up um, one day and, and decide, I'm going to start being last instead of first. I, I'm going to fall down in order to move upward. What we know is so much more complicated than that. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to search for our identity, to fall down, to discover our foundation. It's what actor Stephen Tobolowski calls the moment right before zero. He notes, I was told earlier that it's essential for an actor to remember to go to zero when rehearsing or performing. Actors have to understand that the first moment of a scene where you start, that the place is called zero. And so for 30 years, and for 200 television shows later, I have spent practically all this wisdom of this advice. In television shows, one of the greatest challenges that you have is to work quickly while shooting multiple takes. The great television actors have the ability to snap back in to the first beat of the scene instantly ready for the director's call of one more time from the top. Conversely, I've also seen several actors who've played a scene beautifully, only to get lost on his or her way back to zero. They'll start to take two in tears before they receive the bad news. They'll start to take two angry before they got fired. What I've learned is this. The only way to be consistent is getting back to zero. It's finding the moment right 
before zero. The moment before zero is the key to unlock every scene. Is the world that informs you. Where your character was right before the scene started. Last summer, Tabalaski continues. I was invited as a guest speaker in a master class with about 50 um, young acting students. And one young Australian actor eagerly raised his hand during a Q&A and asked, how do you play drunk? So I asked the class, how would you all uh, play drunk? Hands sprung up. The first answer I got was, you don't play drunk. If, when people are drunk, they always try to appear sober. That was a nice answer. It sounded like sort of a voice from experience. And someone said that they would think about times when they were drunk themselves, or they would remember times when other people were drunk around them. Then they would begin to act out that memory. Again, a nice answer, but it sounded like a lot of work. The real answer, however resides in the moment before zero. It depends on why you got drunk in the first place. Was it to celebrate? Was it to mourn the loss of someone or something? Was it by accident? Was it out of habit? By focusing on why, you get into the situation, the behavior that will take care of itself. The moment before zero informs you all of that. The way up is the way down. If you look closely, Jesus says to us, the moment before zero is when we stop trying to control the situation and begin focusing on God who came down to be with us. And this is our story which is woven together in the Bible that all begins when God created the world. When God created you and me in God's image. Jesus calls us to be last. Jesus calls us to go down. To remind us that we are children of God. Created in God's image. And if we're children of God, created in God's image, then God knows our wants and God knows our needs. And what God knows about each and every one of us is that we all want to be free. And so God gives us bread and a cup that sets us free. Well, God also knows us what we think. God knows that we, can, that we think that we can save ourselves. And so that one day, no matter what, we'll all, sooner or later, reach for that unforbidden fruit in order to define our greatness, in order to control the situation, even when that means climbing on the back of others. In our polarized world today, the churches are also being polarized. It's almost as the churches are being divided into two, one for social justice and the other for personal salvation. But as in Jesus' words, the last of all and servant of all, allow, allowing the churches to be divided in such a way is a luxury 
that our world cannot afford. Not personally or as a church. Personal salvation and social justice are one and the same. They're tied together. We fall down and we become last for God to save us. To remind us of our true identity, which then creates us to following Jesus. Who calls us to be servant of all. This is a scene of Jesus' actions with, with a child. Notice Jesus' movements. Jesus takes a child, brings a child into the circle, and embraces the child. Up until this point, Jesus specifically is teaching disciples only. No one else is around. And then Jesus encounters the child. What Jesus does is breaks down the idea that there is actually an inner circle. That any group is the greatest among us, including the least among us. Well, most people tend to ignore anyone or anything shorter than their kneecaps, Barbara Brown Taylor said. Well, Jesus sees what is going on down there. And he moves in. And he welcomes us in. And he invites us in. Even when it seems like no one is listening to a word that we're saying. Some of the most beautiful music ever composed was actually played on a, on a cold January night in 1941 in an unheated barracks in a German death camp. It was composed by a prisoner at the camp. His name was Alvar Messine, and, and he was a devout Christian, and they wanted to compose some music that would say even in a death camp that the forces of oppression or evil do not control time. He was tired of the hup, two, three, four, hup, two, three, four, of the jackboot. And so he composed a quartet of the end of time based on the, on the word of the angel in the book of Revelation. There will be no more time. All fragment and broken and hopeless time has been gathered into the time of God. How do you compose music like that? The meters and the rhythms are irregular. The musicians can, cannot play with splendid isolation, but by simply keeping time. Instead, they have to, to attend to one another. They have to play as an ensemble. Uh, more than that, they have to play with communion. They have to play with one another. In fact... Right on the score where the composers would have often written, play slowly, play rapidly. Miss Neen wrote, play tenderly, play with ecstasy, play with love. And it was played right there in the middle of a death camp. God's promise of life shows up for you and for me. Even in death. It shows up even when we believe that we have it all under control. It shows up when we keep trying to, great, to gain greatness. And nothing that we do seems to fill the emptiness within us. God invites us to see that God's love is much larger than anything that we can control. God's love invites us in to the inner circle. 
And perhaps this is why it's so scandalous. Because of the miracle of God, we are not only called to serve, but simultaneously, we are being embraced. And if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps that's the hardest thing to do at all. To be embraced by our Creator who tells us that we are loved and that we are cherished. So to be embraced like that requires vulnerability. But if we don't allow ourselves to be embraced, what we find out is we're the only we're always serving. And if we're serving, always, aren't we always trying to be in control? I wonder. With all the houses that are being built and around us, how many people are moving to Lillington, North Carolina? Seeking something more. I mean, people are coming for a bigger house, for lower house payments, who are coming for promotions, who, who are coming with pay raises, who's coming with a new start, who's coming hoping that this move will save them. I wonder how many of us are seeking the same salvation. That no matter what we do, that we feel empty inside. And I wonder, I wonder what it would look like if we became a place that embraced that emptiness. A place for them to feel welcome. A place for all of us to feel welcome. When I think back to my four years here, and when I look out into the congregation today, what I see is a church that is unwilling to accept that challenge. I see a church that is willing to welcome people as they are full of questions, full of emptiness, full of doubt. I see a church that's not interested in, in welcoming people just so they can sign them up on a committee to make our lives a little bit easier or the hopes that they would give a little bit more in tithing to give us just maybe a little bit more up here or there. I don't see a congregation that is eager to embrace people to ensure that our church will last another 110 years. I see a congregation that believes that salvation and social justice are not separated. That through Jesus Christ, Jesus is preparing us to embrace the world around us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.